Good morning. How are y'all doing today? Wonderful. That is wonderful to hear. As we're starting, if, it's, if uh, today is your first time joining us here at Hosanna in our sanctuary, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. I am Pastor Nathan, and today we are gathering together to celebrate the start of Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday, and we're excited about all of that. I say Holy Week, I know there's different you know, uh, monikers for that, Passion Week, Holy Week. Um, it's, it's Jesus Week, so we're going to be celebrating Jesus all week, his, his death, his resurrection, but today we're here to start by looking at Palm Sunday. And you know, when we look at our yearly calendars, we all have them on our phones and at home and stuff. There are certain days on the calendar that are more important than others and certain days we mark out that we should remember or should be ready for. You know, for sure, there are birthdays that we celebrate. There are anniversaries um, for some of you that you should not forget on pain of death, I hear. Um, there are holidays that we celebrate, obviously, and, and um, to remember important events and important things. There are other days that we remember to simply hold ourselves accountable to certain things, and, and there's one particular day in history that was a day of celebration, but was also a day in which our Lord held an entire nation accountable. But it was also a strange day because for one lucky donkey, it was his day to shine. I don't know if you know anything about donkeys, but donkeys have a bad reputation. They're commonly known to be very stubborn, very non-compliant, but the story we're looking at today actually uh, has as one of its central characters a donkey that is the most compliant animal <laughs> in history. I was going to say person. It's not a person. Um, this isn't Shrek. Okay, so, but... Yeah, this donkey was just completely compliant, which is ironic considering what donkeys are known for. But that's not the only irony in the story. This story that we're looking at today is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry of Jesus. But we know that this story ultimately ends with the hero of the story being crucified. This story is uh, full of people who are joyful and exuberant and praising and just excited but we also see that Jesus at the end of the particular story of Palm Sunday is weeping. But this story, recounting what happened on this very first Palm Sunday, teaches us and reminds us about some very, very important truths about Jesus and who he is. He is God Almighty. He is Lord, King of Kings. He is our Savior. And it tells us that his timing is absolutely perfect, that he is never late. He is exactly um, on time, not just in my life, not just in your life, but in all things. That Jesus has a perfect timetable in being God. He knows all things and does all things according to his perfect will and his perfect plan, and that's something we should never forget. But the story of this final week of Jesus' earthly life, um, it starts with Palm Sunday. And this whole week is just one of the most epic weeks of all of history. As I said, by the end of this week, Jesus will be crucified. And we will be remembering this together on Good Friday as we gather here in our sanctuary at 7 p.m. And we'll be live streaming that as well. And then, of course, the following Sunday, which we'll be celebrating a week from today, Jesus rises from the dead. Hallelujah. The resurrection, defeating death forever. But what's interesting is about one-third of all the events we know about Jesus in Scripture, about one-third of them occurred during the last week of his life. And that last week, again, starts with what happened on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. So we're going to open up today with some worship, as we do, to celebrate him and who he is, to set our hearts and our minds in that right headspace of, of, of Jesus. It's, 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 well, it's Jesus every day, but it's Jesus week, right? It's the holy week, this week that, that secured our salvation, that uh, secured our eternity, and so we just want to worship him because he is so worth it, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you, God. We love you. We are so thankful, Lord, that, that you came to this earth and clothed yourself in flesh, dwelt among us, Lord, identified with us in all the ups and downs and all the difficulties and challenges, Lord, that you lived a perfect life, and then according to your perfect and exact timetable, fulfilling prophecies that you gave to your prophets 
decades and in, in, in just years and years and years before, Lord, you entered into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the call, the prophecy that you are the king. But Lord, as we're going to see today, sometimes, Lord, our expectations of you as king are different than the expectations that, that you have for us, Lord. Sometimes what we expect to get from you is not what we really need, and you arrive to bring what we really need. So God, we pray you'd be glorified today as we worship you, Lord, as we start this week, focusing on this last week of your life, Lord, and all that you accomplished for us. God, we do love you. We ask, Lord, that you would just encourage us, uh, renew our excitement for you, our joy, our worship for you. Not because you're coming to give us what we want, but because you came to give us what we need, Lord, salvation. And we're so grateful for that. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are taking a brief break uh, this Sunday and next Sunday from our study of Revelation as we uh, focus in on Holy Week here. And so today we're gonna be in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. And let's read what it says. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why, <clears throat> excuse me, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those of you, so those who were sent left and found, found it just as they were told, told to them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. You know, if we were to go back to this time, we would notice that the setting, the environment, the, the whole vibe in and around Jerusalem at this time was, was very charged, very electric. It was Passover time there in Jerusalem, and at this time, a Jew, Jew, Jewish people from everywhere would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate this very um, holy time for them. And it's said that the population of Jerusalem during Passover time would swell to five times the normal population. And so it was a very, very crowded time. Jesus and his disciples up at this point had um, been doing tons of ministry and had been up in Galilee and now had come through Samaria into Judea and on their journey, finally found themselves going up to Jerusalem, which would be the last time for Jesus' life. Now, this whole trip had lots of activity and action, and you could read all about the miracles and the ministry that Jesus did throughout the Gospels. And if you count them, he actually, from Galilee to this point, had 35 different stops, different appointments of ministry that he did. And so through all of that, through his three years of ministry, all the way through to this time, word had spread about Jesus this radical rabbi who was preaching things that were making the religious leaders very, very upset, but was bringing hope to the people. And so as the word spread at this particular Passover, as he was arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus was all the buzz. Jesus was what everybody was talking about. Everybody was talking about Jesus, possibly in every shop, in the temple area. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Is he coming to the feast? If he does come to the feast, what is he gonna do? Because we've heard all these stories about his miracles and his healings and, and some of the things he has said. Is he gonna show up and what's that gonna be like? Well, the story as recorded for us here in Luke opens up on this donkey of all details. And so it says that they're coming to this very familiar place. It says here, Bethpage and Bethany. And it was an area that was familiar to Jesus and the disciples because Jesus had stayed in this area often because his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were from Bethany. And so he gets to this area and he sends his disciples into the village of Bethpage with a very strange request. He says, look, I want you to go into the village and you're gonna find a donkey tied there. And it's gonna be a particular donkey, one that is young and one that nobody has ever sat on. And I want you to untie it and I want you to bring it to me. 
Now, if you have studied the life of Jesus and his walking with his disciples, there have been more than one occasion where Jesus requested something kind of weird and strange of his disciples as he was teaching them the lessons of trust and faith and belief in him and what he can do. And this was a pretty weird request um, on top of all of those, namely because as far as we know, Jesus never rode anywhere. He never requested to, to get a donkey or a horse to ride on. He walked with his disciples everywhere he went. But in this particular moment, he's now saying, hey guys, go into the village and get this donkey for me. Now the disciples had learned by this time not to argue with Jesus's commands, even the weird ones. Peter himself specifically learning how to step out of the boat if Jesus calls because you will walk on water if that's what Jesus calls you to do. You guys might remember the different times where Jesus would request things of his followers and they would question him about those things. You remember the loaves and the fish, right? Just gather the loaves and the fish. How are we gonna feed so many with so little? And then of course Jesus showed them what he could do and they learned. And then of course Peter, as I said, walking on water, he just argued with Jesus so many times. <laughs> Over and over and over and over and over, Jesus was like, just, just trust me, dude. Just listen. Just believe me. And so they learned that if Jesus tells you to do something, if he calls you to do something, no matter how weird, no matter how strange, no matter how unusual, you just do it. You don't argue with Jesus. He is the king. He is our Lord. Jesus knows what he's up to. He knows what he's doing. And so when Jesus speaks into our lives to do something, to step out, to stop doing something, we should listen because he knows. He knows what's best. He knows what we need. And here he's telling them, hey, go into the town and get this donkey. Now, it's just weird because it's very specific, right? It wasn't go into town and just kind of find something for me to ride on. It was, no, go find a donkey. Not only that, we read in the other Gospels, too, that it was a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? It was a young one. Not only that, it was one that nobody had ever ridden on before. And then as it tells us, they went into this place and they found it exactly as he said. Now, again, was this uh, because Jesus was tired of walking? Was he just like, look, I've been walking for three years, guys. It's time for me to ride on a donkey. No, that's not what was taking place here. Um, Jesus was making a very, very intentional and very, very deliberate statement in getting this donkey. One, that the Jewish people gathered there, the crowds that were gathered in Jerusalem at this time would clearly understand, especially the religious leaders who knew the scriptures very well. They would understand the statement he was making. And so all of these specific details all of these specific requests were because Jesus was fulfilling a very specific prophecy that one of his prophets had said, something that they had predicted, something that the long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people would do. And that prophecy was found in Zechariah 9.9, and it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so again, that meant a very specific donkey, a young one, a young one. And as we see the, the point as Jesus is saying, go get this very specific donkey, because the prophecy pointed out a very specific donkey, that Jesus is then making uh, a statement here that he is now publicly identifying his identity. He was publicly identifying himself as the Messiah, the long-awaited king. And if you remember throughout the Gospels up to this moment, Jesus would never allow a, a public presentation of who he was. You guys read, as we read throughout the Gospels, we see that he would do miracles. He would do ministry in people's lives, and often he would say, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody who I am as, as the king, as the Messiah, all the way through the Gospels. You know, in Galilee, there was a story where the people even tried to take him by force to make him their king because they, they saw what he was doing. And it says in, the, in that particular story that when Jesus found out that that was their plan, he withdrew himself, just disappeared to the crowds. Or again, when we would see Jesus heal people, right? Don't tell anybody. He would often say things like, you know, just, just go present yourself to the priest make the proper sacrifice in the temple in, in praising God for that, make that suitable offering, but, but don't go around proclaiming that I am the Messiah, that I am the king that is coming. Now, Jesus intentionally um, 
did not allow people to, to go on proclaiming that, to know or to, to, to profess this, this, this truth until this moment that he was the coming king. Jesus over and over and over would tell people, my hour had not yet come, the time was not yet, but now, Palm Sunday, the time had come. Now was the moment. Go into town, get me this very specific donkey. You may not understand why. There's gonna be an owner of that donkey who's gonna be like, what, what are you doing? Why are you taking my donkey? Just tell him that the Lord needs it. And that's an interesting phrase to me, the Lord needs it, because um, when you think of God, we don't necessarily think of God as needing anything, right? He is God Almighty. He is the creator of the entire universe. He is the owner of, of everything. What, what, what does he need? Now, of course, there was the, the need to fulfill prophecy in proving who he was, but it's a very interesting phrase. But that was the phrase he told the disciples to say to the owner, and we don't get any record of that interaction. Apparently the owner heard it, and okay, and they took the donkey and brought it back to Jesus. But can you imagine being the owner of this donkey, and you see these strangers outside untying your donkey, and you're like, hey, what are you doing? The Lord needs it. God, the creator of the universe and all within it, needs your donkey. Now, apparently, the guy either relented or consented to them taking it because so, it tells us that they brought it. But it's interesting. What does the Lord need, right? In Acts 17, verse 24, it says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. God doesn't need anything, but here we specifically see him telling his disciples, instruct the owner of that donkey, the Lord needs it. What this tells me is that our God in heaven, who needs nothing, actually has chosen to partner with us, has chosen to partner with us in the ministry that he is doing in the world today. Just like he said to Peter, Peter, I need your boat because I'm going to preach from it to, to crowds. Just like he said, I need those loaves and those fish because I'm doing a miracle. I'm gonna do something that is gonna show you the power that I have to provide for you. We even know that Jesus needed to borrow a tomb for the weekend. Borrow a tomb for the weekend. So that being dead, he would then have a staging place to rise from. Now Jesus being God Almighty, he could have manifested a boat. He could have manifested loaves and fish. He could have manifested a tomb. But he chose to partner with those following him to accomplish his work here on earth. He chose to partner with them to show his desire for his relationship with us, his beloved creation. And so I just love that because as I see in this picture him saying, tell him the Lord needs it. It's not that he's incapable without it. It's that he wants to have relationship. That was why he came. That is why we, we celebrate this whole week, his coming to die on the cross, to, to set us free from sin, to conquer the power of death, that we would have relationship with him forever. And while we're here on this earth still waiting, looking forward to eternity and the glory to come, that he wants to partner with us here. And so today he would say, hey, I need that guitar that you own. I need your car. I, I need your hands and your feet. I need that skill or that ability that I've given to you. Again, not because he is in any way incapable without it, but because he wants to accomplish his will with you. He wants to accomplish his will with you. And so they go and they get this very specific donkey and they answer the owner and they bring it to Jesus and he climbs aboard and proceeds down the slope of the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem. And so we pick up the story again in Luke 19, verse 36. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. I love that story. Me and uh, uh, Ron, years ago, talked about putting speakers that look like rocks on the stage. And then those days where, where we're just kind of quiet as a congregation, just to have a knob to crank the volume up on the rocks, crying out in worship. And obviously we've never done that, but I still think it would be fun to do that one day. Anyways, um, what we see here is two groups of people now making up this crowd that is greeting Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem down the Mount of Olives. And there's two different groups here. One group kind of represents the righteous and one group represents the religious. And I say religious not in the sense of, of, of religion as far as that, that honoring of God, but, but the religion as in a, a system of rules and regulations to... to um, by which one thinks they're going to appease God or attain goodness, right? That's what I mean by that. So this first group, it says they, they spread their clothes down on the road, and you might say, what's up with that, right? You know, I mean, we, we, we might remember that there was such a time where a gentleman would, would take off his coat to lay it over a puddle so that the lady could walk across, and, and you don't hear about stuff like that much today anymore, but, but that idea of laying down our clothes is, was a picture of honor. We actually see that in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, when the people recognize Jehu's call as king over Israel, it says that they put their clothes on the ground for him to walk up the steps as a sign of respect and honor honor to him. And it was like, okay, we, we want to show you how much respect we have for you. And so they laid down their clothes. And then it says there that this crowd, it calls them the whole crowd of disciples. That word disciple means student. These were people who were followers of Jesus from all over the place. You see, it wasn't just the 12 that were with him. It wasn't just the 12 who went and got the donkey and came back and, and it's just him and these 12 dudes walking down. It's a whole crowd of people. Remember, Jerusalem's packed at this point. And there's people from all over that, that had heard about or seen or, or, or experienced Jesus' ministry over the last three years. And so as he's coming into town, they're excited. They're, 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 they're following to see what is he gonna do and what's gonna take place. Because they had seen the miracles of Jesus, it says there. They had seen Jesus do the impossible. They had seen Jesus heal the sick restore sight to the blind. They had seen Jesus do things that, that only God could do. And they wanted to, to, to see that continue, and so they're following him in. But it says they begin to praise joyfully with a loud voice, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. This is a direct reference back to that prophecy that I believe the people were well aware of, especially the religious leaders in Zechariah 9.9. Because again, in that prophecy, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. Right? And so that's what we see these people doing, rejoicing greatly, praising God joyfully with a loud voice, it says there. But what we have here in Luke recorded as, as far as what they were saying is blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But that isn't all they said because if we go look at the other gospels in Matthew and John, we see that they also said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and then Hosanna in the highest heaven. And that word Hosanna, our namesake as a church, we are Hosanna Christian Fellowship. That word is, is rendered in a few different ways, but the quote comes from Psalm 118 and generally means save us or save now or save us now is the idea. And it was an appeal to God that we found in Psalm 118 and that appeal became an expression of public worship. That as people were worshiping God publicly, this expression would come forth, Hosanna. God save us now. God save us. And so liturgically, the phrase kind of came to be known as an equivalent of praise be to God, like praise God. It was just an expression of praise and worship and adoration to who he was. So that's the first group of people we see here. The second group of people in this crowd was the Pharisees. And these were the religious leaders of the time, the ones who had taken the, the law and turned it into something oppressive, turned it into something where like, look, if you do these things, you, you are a good person and, and you qualify and, and God's pleased with you because you follow all these rules down to the wire. In verse 39, it tells us some of the Pharisees from the crowd 
told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. What were they doing? They were praising him, but they were quoting from Psalm 118. They were expressing something written in Zechariah 9.9 about the coming king of Israel. And the Pharisees, we know throughout the Gospels, they're like, no, 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 he's, he's, not, he's not. Some of them were starting to go, we think he is. But they're like, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I love what he says. He answered them and he says, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Creation itself would cry out, proclaiming that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, creator of all things. The King of glory was arriving, just as it was foretold. And the people were excited, loudly singing, it says, worshiping and praising God. But the, but the religious elite, the, the, those whose who's stuffy and dusty and snobbish, joyless, legalistic form of faith, those whose faith was all centered around them and their pride and their own glory and their own ritual and their own transi- uh, traditions, they couldn't stand the worship of the people. They couldn't stand what the people were, were proclaiming about this Jesus. And it's those that get stuck in those types of things. You know, it, it, you know people need to worship the way we worship. They need to do it our way. They need to say the words we say. You can't use those songs because somebody at the church at that song is from said a bad thing once and therefore you're the devil if you use that song. It happened in modern times. How dare you put a drum set on stage in the church? Drums are the devil. Which I personally take offense at, right? Remember one of the things Pastor Gary used to say over the years, and I always loved it, because I'm into some pretty extreme music, personally, right? And Pastor Gary used to always say, there is no such thing as a sinful note. There's no such thing as a sinful note. And, and, and I've always loved that, because worship is worship, and it's not your way or our way. It's to be in spirit and truth, and we're gonna see that in a moment, but worship is us just proclaiming God. You know, I love it. Some people are like, oh, I can't worship if I can't sing well. The Bible says make a joyful noise. (laughs) Some of us, we're like, oh, I'm a noise maker, (laughs) right? Praise God, right? Because it's, it's the joy, it's from the heart that we're to worship God. And it's not about you're doing it our way or you're doing it this way or you're not doing it according to our methods or it, it doesn't matter, Pastor Gary incidentally scared me to death once because I was in this hardcore band about 12, 10 years ago and we would write songs and they were all biblically based and stuff, but it was you know, screamo music and, and very intense and, and uh, we would go out and do shows with secular bands as a mission field and Pastor Gary came once and we had this song that was called Trumpet of Woe and it was about the trumpets that, that are gonna declare uh, the, the judgment of God, and, and he goes, ah, and I think he was in Revelation at the time, and so he goes, hey, I want you to do that on Sunday morning. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you got more faith than I do, Pastor Gary. <laughs> and, and, we, and we didn't, um, and I think I was the one that maybe stifled that, but, but just the heart, right, to say, you know, it's, it's proclaiming God, and it's not your method or my method or your style of music or my style of music. It, it's about the heart that says, I want to joyfully praise God for who he is and what he's done. I want to praise him for, for all of that. And so we see these people doing that, and then we see these Pharisees going, look, rebuke them. Tell them what they're doing is wrong. Now, specifically, contextually, I believe the rebuke was to rebuke them for, for calling you king. Rebuke them for referring to you as the coming Messiah because that, that can't be. But Jesus says, if I do that, the stones would cry out. Now, in the midst of all that worship and joy, there, there was something off in all of it. You know, the crowd was obviously a mixed group of people. We see that there's some people here just happy and, and people rejoicing. We see here some complaining. Um, but there were many there that were just excited for Jesus. They were excited for who he was and excited for what he did. But there was also some there that were excited for the wrong reasons. You know, John adds in his gospel that in this moment they brought palm branches. And that's 
why we reference this as a Palm Sunday, right? That they brought palm branches. And, and the idea of the palm branches came from about 150 years prior to this. The Maccabees, which were a group of Jews there in the, in the area, they overthrew the Syrians. And so you had this Maccabean revolt and they overthrew the Syrians and, and liberated Jerusalem, which was God's city, right? And in their celebration of this liberation and their celebration of this, this oppression being overthrown and them being set free, set free, they brought out palm branches as a part of that celebration. And so culturally in the, in the area there, the palm branch for them became known as a symbol of deliverance, right? That was what the palm branch symbolized, deliverance, right? And that tied into the whole Hosanna, save us now, deliver us, right? And so at the time of Jesus' triumphal entry, the Jewish people had been under the yoke and the oppression of Rome for a long time, and they desired deliverance from Rome. They desired deliverance from the oppression that Rome was bringing upon them. And so they were looking forward to their Messiah, but coming as a conqueror, coming as one who would come in and overthrow the Roman government and set up his kingdom and rule the earth in righteousness. And that's what they were generally looking forward to as a people. And so thus, as they cry out and quote from Psalm 118, verse 25, it says, Lord, save us in the CSB. Hosanna. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And so this crowd primarily was looking at Jesus as their deliverer, but not in the way he was coming to deliver them. They were looking to Jesus as the one that was going to bring them salvation and deliverance, but not the salvation and deliverance they needed it was the salvation deliverance that they thought they needed, what was before them. They expected the conquering Messiah to come, set up a kingdom there on earth, overthrow the governments of the world, and rule. And it's sad because many from this same crowd, as we read on this Palm Sunday, the opening of this Holy Week, who are praising him and proclaiming him and worshiping him and waving the palm branches and, 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 and singing loudly, it says, save now, Hosanna. Many in the same exact crowd in just a few days' time would stand in another crowd screaming out, crucify him, crucify him. You know, many, I think, love to praise God in anticipation of him giving them what they want. I've been there. You know, God, I want this, I want that. And so we're Oh, you're king and you're Lord and, you're, and, we, and we praise him because there's an anticipation of him giving us what we want, but sometimes we turn a corner when he instead gives us what we need. What we need. And it's important to understand worship, right? Worship is not buttering God up. Right? It's not buttering him up to impress him or to influence him to get what we want. That's not what worship is. You know, you think of, you know, kids, right? Children, they, they, they never do their chores more enthusiastically than when they want something from you, right? I got straight A's in school, not because I cared about school, but because my parents were like, we'll give you $20 per A. I was like, sweet, that's 100 bucks. Now, to their credit, I got a good education. I studied and did well, right? But I was motivated by, I'm gonna get what I want out of this. Or you hear stories about uh, couples or spouses sometimes going the extra mile, right? And, you know, breakfast in bed and foot rubs. And the question is usually, what do you want or what did you do? But in our worship to God, it's not a butter you up because we want something or we did something. It's, it's not a, you know, I'm going to obey you now because I want the thing at the, the end of the equation here. Worship is not an event. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's a call that we have. It's not to get what we want from God. It's to say thanks for what he's given. You know, in John chapter 4, verse 23, it says, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. Did you hear that? He wants such people to worship him. True worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. 
God wants people to worship him, not because of a place, right? And that's the context of the whole woman at the well thing. You guys worship in Jerusalem, we worship here. Where are we supposed to worship? God is spirit, he's everywhere. He's not confined to a place. And sometimes we think, well, I'm at church, so I'm gonna worship. But I'm not at church, so I'm not gonna worship. That's, that's not the correct thinking. We're not worshiping him out of duty or a desire to, to get something, as I said, but because of who he is and what he's done in our lives. It's praising his name. It's singing glory to his name. True worship is where the focus is on God, not on me, not on us, not on my tradition, not on my method, and not even on my need. You know, that's why I always find it just, just interesting when, when people, you know, oh, can you, can you stop doing that song? I don't like it. Well, it's not for you, you know? It's for God. And I've always had this picture in my head of walking into the throne room and saying, hey, Dad, I just, I just want to sing songs to you today. What do you want to hear? And I imagine one day God's going to say, I want to hear some hymns. Okay, I'm going to sing those hymns to you. And then one day he's going to say, you know what? I want punk rock. <laughs> right on, Dad. You know, it's just, it's because it's for him. It's what he wants. It's to glorify his name, not to satisfy us. Now, it does do something in us, and that's just the bonus. That's just the blessing. But worship is for him. And not everybody in this crowd, unfortunately, that we're reading about was worshiping the king simply because he was the king. But instead, they were worshiping him as king, hoping to get more stuff, more miracles more blessings, and many in that crowd didn't know or ignored their true need, the need that Jesus was really showing up to address, their spiritual need, their salvational need inside, and because they didn't recognize it, it broke his heart, as we're going to see in verse 41, and I think this is a foreshadowing of his heart literally bursting as he died on the cross for the sins of the world. Read with me in verse 41, Luke 19. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You should have known better. You should have been ready. I've proclaimed it. There's, my prophet spoke of it. You, you, <laughs> the people are literally <laughs> singing it out. And you're missing it. You're missing it. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. You know, the contrast here is great. On one hand, you have this whole scene of a celebratory parade, waving the branches, people singing loud voices, praising God, just, just proclaiming him even as king. But then the king on the donkey stops and he starts crying. And I'm sure that confused the people. Wait, what? <laughs> What's up with Jesus? We're here celebrating his presentation of the king of Israel we're here celebrating his presentation. We're singing in worship. We're, and he starts crying. He starts crying. Now, again, I know some of us feel that way about our voices, right? And, 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 and we don't want to make Jesus cry. That's not at all what's taking place here, okay? This is actually the second time that the Bible records Jesus weeping. And many of us are familiar with the first time is when his friend Lazarus died. The shortest verse in the entire Bible, it says Jesus wept. And the word wept there means to shed tears, tears coming out of his eyes. He was crying. But here, the second time the Bible records Jesus weeping, it's a very different word. In English, it's still weep. But, but in the original language, it's a different word. It's a word that doesn't mean just tears falling from the eyes. It's a word that means to cry freely and profusely, to wail with loud mourning. Imagine, put yourself in the moment there. There's Jesus on the donkey. That's Zechariah 9.9. He's the king. 
Where's the palm branches? Everybody wrecked everybody's palm trees that day, right? Ripping the branches off and waving them. Just blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he stops and just starts weeping and wailing loudly. What is, what is happening? Why is he doing this? I imagine something going, well, this is certainly a, a, a different kind of king than we're used to. You know, at that time, uh, many kings, in, in kind of broadly and generally kings, were generally considered detached from their people, aloof, unconcerned for their subjects, right? Sitting on the throne up in some palace or castle somewhere and, and, and didn't know or didn't care about the needs of the common people. But if you've ever had any thought of God in that way, think again. Because what we see here is the heart of our God. God cares. God cares about everything in our lives. He cares about every joy. He cares about every tear. He cares about every victory. He cares about every defeat. He cares about every struggle. He cares about every fear, every worry. He cares about our health issues. He cares about our financial issues. He cares. He cares. More than that, as God Almighty, he knows every detail about all of it. And as he was coming into this town on this day, and everybody's going, our king is here to meet all our needs. He's weeping because you guys don't even realize the real need that you have and the real need that I'm here to satisfy. God cares most of all, I think, about our deepest eternal and spiritual needs. Our need for freedom from sin, our need for forgiveness and salvation. And I believe that's what made him cry here, that the people didn't get it. The people didn't get it. They were focused on the temporal. They were focused on the material, as if that was all life was about. As if that was all that mattered. And in, in, in mankind, you know, we tend to think what's on the outside if we change what's on the outside enough, that'll fix our problems, right? It's, it's in, in relationships. Well, if my, if my partner or my spouse, if they would just change, everything would be fixed. At work, if my boss just changed, everything would be fixed. My supervisor, if, it's, it's all the ex, if the external just changed, everything would be better. And that never fixes anything. The heart of man is the problem, not the external stuff. You know, just this last week, we heard about this horrific shooting at this school in Tennessee, I believe, right? And my heart breaks for those families, but my heart also breaks for the shooter. Now, I'm not at all happy with how the media is trying to turn this into a let's focus on trans rights thing, then these three kids that got murdered, but I'm not gonna get on that soapbox right now. But my heart breaks because our world keeps saying, no, if we change laws and if we get new people in office and we say this is okay and we build tolerance into this, everything will be fine. But the heart of man is still broken. It's still corrupted. It's still messed up. And it's the heart that needs to be addressed. And it's not about, again, new governments or new laws or different rules or cultural acceptance. None of that addresses the heart of people. And as long as mankind, as, as a race, is about getting what it wants at the expense of everything else, there will be no peace. And that's what Jesus says here. If you knew this day, what would bring peace? And it wasn't Jesus coming in and saying, I'm, I'm the ruler of the world now, and I'm the ruler of the economy now, and I'm here physically, and I've overthrown everything around you that is, that is oppressive. We'll never have peace in our world if it's external things that we think are gonna change everything. Not in our world, not in our hearts, and not in our communities. And so when he says, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? You know, true peace comes when we when we stop putting ourselves in the first place of priority. My needs, my wants are the first and most important thing in the world. 
When we stop doing that, we can find true peace. When we stop assuming the worst about our neighbor and the worst about our partners and the worst about our spouse or, or the, the relationships we're in, the worst about what's going on, when, when we stop assuming the worst and maybe grant the benefit of the doubt, when we humble ourselves and put others before us as the Bible teaches, that's when true peace comes. But we can't do that in any truly lasting way in our fallen sinful nature. We can't. Our fallen sinful nature is selfish. It is selfish. It is all about me and my wants and my needs and that's it. That is why we need to have a spiritual heart transplant. To have our heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, as the Bible says. To have our old nature put to death. To be resurrected anew, born again with a new spirit, to be spiritually raised into new life, changed and transformed from the inside out. That is what man needs, and that is why Jesus came the first time. He came to pay our price, to die in our place, to defeat death to grant us grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation, uh, to, to give us a new heart, a new nature, to change us from the inside out that we would be different people, living a different way, God's way. Not to overthrow the enemies around us, but he came to conquer the enemy within, our sin nature. I think true peace only comes through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But because the people here in the story were like, change the outside stuff. And they weren't even getting it. I think that's what caused him to weep and to cry. And, and, and I don't believe it was the city. It says he was weeping over Jerusalem. It wasn't the buildings he was crying about. It wasn't the, 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 the architecture. It's what the city represented is why he was weeping. It was supposed to be the city of God. It was supposed to be a place where his temple, his dwelling on earth was represented, the place where true worship of him took place, the place where his message of salvation and freedom went forth into the entire world, but it had been corrupted by people who were supposed to represent him. It had been turned into a legalistic system of glorification of self enslaving people into something that was supposed to bring them freedom. And so Jesus, looking down the slope of the Mount of Olives as he's traveling towards the city of Jerusalem, he didn't just see the city, but he looked inward to the hearts of the people. And he saw people who were trying to fill the emptiness of their lives with a religious system, and it didn't work. And he also looked forward in time, 40 years, to see the results of living a life like that. And so verse 43, again, he said, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. And in April 9th of 70 AD, after a long revolt and civil unrest there, Titus, a Roman general, arrived with his armies and surrounded the city of Jerusalem during Passover time. That's when the siege began. And the city at that time was packed with people as it was every year during Passover. But the Romans ended up building a wall or a barricade around the city that surrounded or hemmed the entire city in. And as people were arriving for Passover, they would allow them into the city, but they would allow nobody to leave. Why? Because they wanted the city to be depleted of its water resources and its food resources. And so they kept letting people in, but nobody could leave. And eventually, the resources ran out and people began to starve. And they were just throwing the bodies over the walls. They weren't even burying them. And the siege lasted all the way through the end of summer that year when Titus gave the order, okay, it's time to just level the whole city. But he said, don't touch the temple. Don't touch the temple. And during the attack, histories recount that the people of Jerusalem were trampled and crushed underfoot as the soldiers were just rushing in and people just in mass trying to get away as the soldiers were just cutting people down. 
Then as the story is told, a, a drunken soldier who allegedly heard a divine call, a voice spoke to him, had a torch and threw it through a window in the temple. And the veil caught fire and the whole temple went up. Titus, the general, even tried to gather his troops to put the fire out because he said, don't touch the temple. But by this time, the troops were so tired of the siege and so tired of the, the rebellion of the people that they were just eager and had bloodlust and just let it go and, 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 and fan those flames so it would burn even more. And the flames of that temple burned so hot that the gold throughout the temple then melted into the cracks between the stones and the soldiers in their bloodlust and greed dismantled every single stone to get to the gold that had melted into the cracks. Thus, not one stone was on another. And Jesus, here in his triumphal entry, sees the present of the people, and he sees their future. He sees what is to come as a result of their empty religious system. He sees what is to come as a result of them of not acknowledging or knowing their true spiritual need, that they need to be changed from the inside out. It's a, it's a circumcision of the heart, not a circumcision of the flesh. That was a sign to point to the other. And this morning, Jesus sees into each one of our lives. He sees our present. He sees our future. He sees every single choice that every single one of us are making today and the future result of those choices. And for some of us, he sees good choices. And he's rejoicing with you and saying, well done, good and faithful servant, awesome. Keep, keep obeying me, keep following my ways, keep doing, because I see the future of those things, the fruit of that, and, and, and it's great. But for others, he might be looking on your life and weeping. He sees the, the broken heart that you carry by the hurts you've been through. He sees the emptiness. He just sees the general brokenness that you keep bringing upon yourself because you willfully disobey God and choose to do what he says not to do. And he's devastated by the path you're walking because he can see the future of where it's going to lead. Now at the beginning of this holy week, some of us are gathered here and We've walked with Jesus for a long time. We know him as our Lord and Savior. We've been transformed by his love, born again, redeemed by his sacrifice, right? You've, you've learned to, to hear his voice and his word and in worship, and, and you've learned to obey that voice even when it doesn't make sense sometimes in the moment. When Jesus is calling you to do something, you're like, I don't quite understand, but you've learned to listen and, and keep doing that because Jesus wants to partner with you he wants to continue to partner with you. He needs you and what he's given you and the talents and the time and the resources and everything to, to accomplish what he's doing in his kingdom. He wants to partner with you in the building of his kingdom. And so do that and listen and move forward in that and celebrate and praise his holy name. And I challenge you this morning during our last closing worship song, don't keep silent. But, but praise him joyfully as they did here with a loud voice. You know the word we don't see there is beautiful voice, right? It doesn't matter if you can't sing. Praise him this morning. I challenge you. I'll be right here in the front row. I want, I want my hair to like fly forward. <laughs> I don't know that it will, but that would be cool. Anyways, just a picture, right? A visual. But, but praise him. I challenge you to praise him this morning. Some of you may be here this morning, whether you're in your room or online, that you might may be represented by the Pharisees, right? You, the, the unbridled joy of others in their worship highlights the, the dour, joyless faith, faith that you walk in, and it just irks you. It just irks you. And, you know, let this Palm Sunday for you be a reminder of why Jesus came for you what he came to do for you and, and drop the trappings of cold legalism and enter into the joy of the salvation that you have in Christ. Some of you here this morning, you've possibly been attending church for a while, and, but you're still in a place where, where you think coming to church and your worship of God is, is just a means to get what you want. 
Maybe the means is just to soften your guilt a little bit, right? Because you're not saved, you're not forgiven, you don't have a relationship with him, but you know, you come to church once a week and you kind of feel a little bit better about what you did the previous week. Problem is, is tomorrow, you'll just go back to your normal ungodly way of living. And, and Jesus is your king when, when, when his will lines up with what you want. But that's the only time he's your king. Recognize today that God, Jesus Christ, is visiting you today. Recognize that he is visiting you and he's saying, look, your real needs go far deeper than the external stuff. Your real need goes far deeper than your boss or your spouse or, or your job. Your real need is your heart. Your real need is your dead spirit needing to be born again and made alive, and that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ, a full yielding and submission to him. Not as a means to get what you want, but out of a recognition that you are a sinner desperately in need of forgiveness. You have no peace in your life because, well, Jesus says you have no peace with me. You need to lay down your life before him today like the disciples laid down their clothes on that road in recognition of who he is. Repent of your sin. Submit your life to him this Palm Sunday on his terms to follow his ways, not your own, because he is God. Because he loves you more than anyone ever will. He loves you so much that he came to this earth to die for your sin. And he wants to save you. And he wants to bring peace into your life before the destruction falls. In a moment, we're gonna pray. And if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do so. And then after that, we're gonna close in worship. And again, I challenge you that know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today to sing loudly. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for who you are, God, and what you've done. We thank you, Lord, that you fulfilled prophecy perfectly. God, that you fulfilled the timetable of when you were to enter Jerusalem perfectly. That you did everything exactly as you predetermined it to be. So that there would be no question who you are, God. But Lord, today I pray that we wouldn't be like those who missed the point who thought that you were coming to change the external stuff, Lord, because you came to change the internal. You came to change our heart, Lord. You came to give us a new heart and a new life and a new nature. And we only get that through repentance, through yielding our life to you and professing you as our Lord and Savior, giving our life to you, acknowledging you as God who died for us, And so while we're praying here with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're in this room this morning and Jesus is speaking to you about your need to receive him as your king, Jesus is speaking to you about your need to recognize today that God is visiting you and extending that hand of forgiveness, that hand of fellowship, and saying, come be a part of my family. I love you so much. I want to forgive you and change you. If that's you in this room this morning and you want to receive that, I just want you to raise your hand where you're seated. Just say, yes, I want to receive Jesus this morning. I see you in the back. Anybody else? God is speaking to you this morning, and he wants to change your life. He wants to forgive you. He wants this holy week to be the first holy week with a brand new spirit in your life. Anybody else in this room? God is speaking to you. Just raise your hand where I could see it. Let me pray with you this morning. If you're online, watching online, obviously I can't see you. But if you want to receive Jesus Christ this morning in a moment when I pray, just let us know in the chat there that you want to receive Jesus and pray with me here. So both you in this room and online, if you want to receive Jesus this morning, say, Jesus, I believe you are God. I believe you came to this earth to die for my sin. I believe that you have the power to wash me clean to forgive me of every sin I've ever committed and every sin I ever will commit. I profess you today as God Almighty, King of kings, Lord of lords. I believe that you care for me deeply. Thank you for loving me so much. 
I submit my life to you. Change me, mold me, and shape me into your very image that I would glorify your name with my life. Thank you for loving me so much. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer this morning, we have some new believers packets up here to give to you. It's just our gift to you to help you in these steps of this relationship with God. If you're online and you received Christ this morning, let us know. We'll mail one of these new believers packets out to you. But this relationship we have with God, this is what this whole thing is all about. This relationship, this opportunity to walk with him is born of what he did coming to die for our sins to pay the price that we would be able to have restored fellowship with God. And it is beautiful. It is beautiful. And this week, as we're heading towards Good Friday and heading towards Easter, I pray that not only would God just speak into your hearts and your minds the the blessings and the, the reminder of what it's all about, but that you would have opportunity to tell someone who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior about the hope that is found in Christ, about the forgiveness that is found in Christ. I look forward to seeing all of you here on Good Friday at 7 p.m. and next week um, to just celebrate what God has done for us. Amen? Let's worship, guys.